Exodus chapter 2, beginning in verse 23. Exodus 2, verse 23. Hear now the word of the living God. Now it happened in the process of time that the king of Egypt died. Then the children of Israel groaned because of the bondage. And they cried out, and their cry came up to God because of the bondage. So God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God looked upon the children of Israel, and God acknowledged them. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the back of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire from the midst of a bush. So he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, but the bush was not consumed. Then Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush does not burn. So when God, or when the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not draw near this place. Take your sandals off your feet for the place where you stand is holy ground. Moreover, he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look upon God. And the Lord said, I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. So I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up to the land, to a good and large land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. Now, therefore, behold, the cry of the children of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come now, therefore, and I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? So he said, I will certainly be with you. And this shall be a sign to you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, Indeed, when I come to the children of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they say to me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Moreover, God said to Moses, thus you shall say to the children of Israel, the Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And this is my memorial to all generations. This is the word of the living God. And we say, thanks be to God. Amen. Please be seated. Let's pray together. Now, Lord, we ask for your aid once more this day in rightly hearing your word. Comfort and guide your people in it. Enlarge our minds for who you are 
as the great I am. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our focus tonight will be in those last two verses. Moses says, who should I say that you are? Who shall I tell them that you are who sends me? The living God says, I am who I am. But the background of this passage is this. Moses has fled from Egypt. You might remember that story, boys and girls. He had to get out of Egypt as you were and go out into the surrounding lands. And God has heard the groaning of his people. And the text tells us that he remembers his covenant. Now, we're not meant to take that as God has been forgotten something and then remembered it like we do just about every day. But it's a way of saying God's word is ever before him. He remembers it. And the basis of Moses's instruction when he goes to them and says, God is going to redeem us. God is going to save us. The basis is first. This is who he is. What I want us to see tonight is really this. That as God saves a people, he is very interested in those people knowing who he is. Among other things, this text reveals that the God who saves attaches his name to his work of salvation. And he expects that his redeemed people will come to know him and grow in their knowledge of him. Now we're reading in a passage in the Old Testament. Turn for just a moment over to John chapter 17. You remember that high priestly prayer, as it's often called, where Jesus prays for you and for me just before going to the cross. Notice how he begins that prayer. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son also may glorify you as you have given him authority over all flesh and that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. Then John 17, three, and this is eternal life that they may know you. The only true God and Jesus Christ whom you've sent the God who redeems people is very interested in those people knowing who he is. Now, as I mentioned, Exodus chapter 3, verses 14 and 15 are our key focus. And God said to Moses, I am who I am. We don't operate this way today. We give our children names, sometimes a couple of names. We attach our last name to it. And that's really their identity But that's about as far as it goes. They learn when they're in trouble (laughs) that they're being called. Later in life, when their friends on the playground want to say, hey, come play with us, their name is called. Sometimes there's significance behind how we name them. But in biblical times, a name was very significant in identifying the person. To attach your name is to be identified as something. Here in Exodus chapter 3, verse 14, Yahweh, I am who I am, is the name of God. Now, could not God have simply said, I am the all-powerful one. I am the all-knowing one. I am the all-victorious one. 
Couldn't he have just simply said what he says in just a moment? I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Well, yes. But God is specifically attaching his name to what he is about to do. I am. No one else can say that that is their name. For within a matter of decades, they will cease to be exactly who they are. But not so with the living God. So, thus far in our text, God, remembering his covenant, is about to redeem his people out of slavery. He's about to mercifully bring them out of the hands of the oppressor and bring them into a land flowing with milk and honey. But first, first, this is who I am. Who then is our God? Who is our God? We, as Gentile believers in 2023, are not a people that have been brought through the Red Sea out of Egypt and into the Promised Land. But we are a people who have been brought out of slavery to sin by the hand of the living God and are headed very much for a Promised Land. Who then is our God? Our Confession of Faith, the London Baptist Confession of Faith, one that we are walking through over the course of this year, in chapter 2, paragraph 1, reads as follows. And it's a mouthful. But it says this, The Lord our God is but one only living and true God, whose subsistence is in and of himself, infinite in being and perfection, whose essence cannot be comprehended by any but himself. A most pure spirit, invisible, without body, parts, or passions, who only hath immortality, dwelling in the light which no man can approach unto, who is immutable, immense, eternal, incomprehensible, almighty, every way infinite, and then just as we sang a moment ago, most holy, most wise, most free, most absolute, working all things according to the counsel of his own immutable and most righteous will for his own glory. Most loving. He's not just loving. He's most loving. Most loving, gracious, merciful, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth, forgiving iniquity, transgression and sin, the rewarder of them that diligently seek him, and withal most just and terrible in his judgments, hating all sin, and who by who will by no means clear the guilty. Now that's a mouthful, but that's really a summary of what the Bible says about the great I am. I want us to look at those words for just a moment and then return to Moses, the burning bush, and the covenant God who declares who he is as he saves a people. There are many words in that paragraph, and those words come from literal words of the Bible or teachings found in the Bible. Who is our God? Who is the God that has saved you out of slavery to sin? Who is the God who has brought you through the waters of the Red Sea of baptism? Who is our God who has placed you in a land that you did not earn? Let me give you a list and some scripture passages to consider. Our God is, boys and girls, everywhere. 
There's a word for that, omnipresent. But God is everywhere. There is no place that our God is not. Jeremiah 23, verses 23 and 24. Am I a God at hand, declares the Lord, and not a God far away? Can a man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see him, declares the Lord? Do I not fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord? God is omnipresent. Yes, the scriptures speak to our going home to heaven to be with God. But boys and girls, God is not just in heaven. God is everywhere. There is no place where the presence of the living God is not. But in addition to God being everywhere, God is all-knowing. The word for this is omniscient. Omniscient. God knows everything. 1 John 3.20, for whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. Think about this, boys and girls. There's nothing that God does not know. As we'll see in just a moment, there's nothing for God to learn. There's no knowledge that God doesn't have. God is also all-powerful or omnipotent. Luke 1.37, for nothing will be impossible with God. In this room, there are some who are strong and there are some who are stronger. God is not simply the most strong. God is omnipotent. He has all power. These ways of speaking about God are ways in which we recognize Something that God is supreme at. Something that describes who he is. But sometimes we speak about God in ways where we need to say, this is what God is not. So, for instance, God is infinite or not finite. Bounded, measurable, able to be contained, able to end God is infinite, 1 Kings 8, 27. But will God indeed dwell on earth? The whole heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built. God is infinite. This may sound technical, but God being infinite means that God cannot be measured in any way. Not size, not strength, not power. But not age. The Bible indeed calls God the ancient of days. But God is not just very old, boys and girls. We often think about that, don't we? We think, I am small and I am little, but God must be very big. I am young. God must be very, very old. For after all, he has been around longer than all of us. But technically, that's not even the right way to think about God. God is not old as if he could be measured By age, he's infinite. You cannot put an age or a number on God. Or how about this one? The scripture says that God is invisible. We sang that just a moment ago. 1 Timothy 1.17 To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. From time to time, I have occasion to speak to college students And the topic of God and ways that people think about God comes up. 
And one of the interesting things that we talk about is the reality that in our day, many people say, I don't believe in God because I can't see him. If God would just make himself visible, or if I could know, proving with my senses that God is real, then I would believe in him. But the irony of that is that God is invisible. Human eyes will not be able to capture the living God. God is invisible. Now, boys and girls, of course, the invisible God has put on our flesh and come to dwell among us. Jesus Christ. And we do behold his glory. Glory is of the only one from the father, full of grace and truth. But it's important to remember there, it's because Jesus put on flesh that we see the Son of God. God is also immutable. The scripture makes clear that God does not change. James 1.17, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Some of you love talking about philosophical things. Some of you don't. This one might sound a little technical. But to say that God doesn't change means that God doesn't become anything. God does not become anything. He doesn't get enriched by human beings. Job 22 verses 2 and 3. Even when we say we're giving glory to God, we don't mean God has this much glory. And now because I have given him something, he has more. No, when we say give glory to God, we mean recognize a small component of an infinite reality. The glory of the living God. God doesn't get more or less anything than he already is. This is important. It was debated about 50 to 60 years ago in theological circles. And we mentioned it before. God does not learn. God does not look down the corridor of time to see what is going to happen, nor does God experience things and just happen to be the quickest at the draw. Well, this is what I'll do. I am, after all, the living God. No. God knows all things, which is also a part of connecting this word unchanging. God doesn't change in knowledge. How about this? First John three twenty. We read it earlier. God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. Job thirty seven sixteen. Do you know the balancing of the clouds? The wondrous works of him who is perfect in knowledge. If God learns at all, it would mean that he wasn't perfect in knowledge before. He wasn't infinite in knowledge before. God is unchanging. Another thing that we need to know about our God is, as our confession says, God is incomprehensible. Now, this doesn't mean that there aren't things that we can know about God. But we can't fully know all that there is to know about God. He reveals certain things to us, but our finite minds cannot fully comprehend this God. Job 26.14, Job 37.5. So you see, we're saying certain things about who God is. He is everywhere present, everywhere knowing, 
in all ways powerful, but he's also not finite. He's not visible. He's not mutable. He's not comprehensible. Perhaps one that's a little bit more challenging for us and one that certainly is debated in these days. And that is that phrase in our confession that you heard me read just a moment ago. After a long list of words, which we've spoken about, right before we get into the immutable, immense, eternal, incomprehensible, we read this phrase that God is, quote, without body, parts, or passions. Now, what does that mean, God is without passions? Does that mean that God doesn't care about anything? You see, we read that word and we think about that word the way that we use it today. I'm passionate about something. There's a new coffee shop going up down the street. I'm passionate about coffee, so I'm excited to go. The World Cup is on TV. I'm passionate about soccer, so I'm going to watch it. Or I travel to a third world country on a short-term mission trip and I see the immense hunger and thirst and it moves me and I become passionate about providing clean water to people who do not have it. And in a sense, this is almost getting that word passions right. But that word passions goes back long before our day. It means to be acted upon from the outside. Now this is important. Because if we're not careful, we'll just think that this word, God is without passions, means that God is just stoically uncaring. But impassibility, or God being without passions, means that God does not experience emotional changes as a passive recipient from any created thing. God is not sitting in heaven, boys and girls, seeing things unfold and then being moved, if you will, as if some internal change has happened. We are, though, all of the time. When I first started to know and love my wife, I would see her as I was learning about her. I would encounter her And there would be times where something that she would say, something that she would do, or just a glimpse of her would cause a change in me. And I would experience either an emotion or a drawing toward her. That's passion. That's passion. A root word that we get from that word is the word passive. Being acted upon from the outside. God does not undergo or experience passively anything. He simply is. The old King James Version in Acts chapter 14, verse 15, in the midst of some discussions of the gospel moving forward, there is an encounter. You remember that encounter. In Acts chapter 14, verse 15, turn there with me for just a moment. Acts 14 and verse 15. 
Acts 14, verse 15. The apostles are at Iconium, at Lystra. They think that some of the apostles are gods and worthy of worship. And in verse 15 in the New King James, and likely in your modern translations as well, it says, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men with the same nature as you. But the Greek word underlying nature is a word which has in it the word passions. The old King James renders it this way. We also are men of like passions with you. We undergo changes all of the time. We shift all of the time. Things outside of us all of the time cause changes on the inside of us. And we react or we feel we're just like you. Don't worship us. Because we are men of passions like you. But God is without passions. James 1.17 again, Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. God doesn't suffer. For that would imply a change in God. God doesn't look down at you as his child and say, I feel greater love today for this person. I am growing in my love. Something that they are doing is producing a change in me. Rather, we ought to understand that God is without passions, but God simply is perfection. He simply is love. He simply is mercy. When we understand the scriptures to say that God both loves his people and that God is without passions, that is a glorious truth. Because what that means is that God doesn't have love, a feeling love that he grows in, that if you do the right things, he will shift and change and grow in love for you. God sets His love upon you. And in one sense, you cannot be more loved than you are. Now, what about all of the times when we see Jesus suffering? When we see Jesus growing and changing. When we see Jesus weeping at the tomb of his good friend. When we see him understanding that The entire city of Jerusalem, it seems, is going to reject God's plan of salvation. And he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, oh, that you would come to me that I might gather you like a hen gathers her chicks. And there's emotion. There is movement. There we see Jesus, according to his humanity, demonstrating perfectly, without sin, a full range of passions. But Jesus is fully God. And fully man. God is without passions. Lastly, that phrase, God is without parts. What does that mean? I think we all understand what it means when it says that God is without body. God doesn't have a human body, boys and girls. God doesn't have any body. He's invisible. He's not physical. He's not material. We've talked about God not having Passions, but what does it mean for God not to have parts? Well, for that, 
we're speaking of what we call the doctrine of divine simplicity. That God is not made up of parts. Again, sometimes in working with college students, I'll say, well, hypothetically, if you if you if you're willing to just go with me for a minute, let's let's say even those of you that in in the room are atheists, if we were to say that God exists. What would be the attributes of God? And of course, even in the secular society that we live in, we'll get words like, well, justice, goodness, beauty, power, knowledge. We start writing these on the board, kind of in a circle, and we break up the circle. And in this little puzzle piece, we we put knowledge. And in this little puzzle piece, we put love. And over here, we put beauty. And we fill that puzzle piece in. And then if you ask the question, okay, if that makes up God, and those are parts of God, what had to exist first? Well, the parts would. Yes, the parts would. God is not first if he's made up of parts. His existence would require all of these attributes. God doesn't have love as a part of a building block. God is love. God is beauty. God is good. God is who he is. And this is what God told Moses. When you tell them who's going to redeem them, tell them, I am who I am. You see, scholars down through the ages have understood the pages of Scripture to be clear. that God's existence is not based on anything, including parts. Your existence is. You're made up at least of a body and a soul. You don't exist without food. For a certain number of days. Without water. You required biological parents. To bring you into this world. Humanly speaking. Not so with God. He's not made up of anything. Nor does his existence require anything. Or anyone to exist. So all that he is. Is God. This. This. Is what. He tells Moses, this is my name. I am who I am. It's at this point that we need to say, "Okay, this is important because it's the doctrine of God. But how do I apply this to my life tomorrow? I think I'm tracking with you, Pastor, on several of these terms. Some of them I want to think about a little bit more. I might even have questions about. But how do I apply that into my life? Well, let me give you at least three ways to apply this, specifically from Exodus chapter three. The first is this. God does not change. And therefore, we can trust him to save. God does not change and therefore we can trust him to save. Now, this is almost a direct quote from Malachi three, six. There at the very end of the Old Testament, God's people had fallen back into some of their evil ways. And in Malachi 3, 6, the living God says this to his people. Perhaps it warrants turning there in your Bible. Malachi 3, 6. 
Once again, interestingly enough, the chapter where this occurs begins with a discussion of God saving. I'm going to send my messenger, the messenger of the covenant. Several day, several verses later, we read this in Matthew 3, 6. For I am the Lord. I do not change. Therefore, you are not consumed, O sons of Jacob. Just just meditate on that for a moment. I'm going to send my covenant messenger, and we know who he is, our precious Lord and Savior who bled out precious blood to redeem us. I'm going to send him. But sinners though you are, you will not be consumed because I don't change. I don't shift. I don't change my mind. I don't decide I'm going to send a Redeemer to redeem you. And then the next day, shift and say, you know what, I've changed my mind. I I, I don't want to do that. When God says, in covenant with us, I will save you, He will not change His mind. And notice throughout the Bible... God's identity and his covenant work are intimately connected. I don't change. So you are not consumed. I've given you this example from this pulpit before, although it was several years ago. But how do we think about God not changing? Augustine in the late 300s, early 400s, wrote these words, quote, The sun itself does not change, whether it scorches or warms, hurts or animates. It's a perfect picture. Every analogy somewhere is going to break down, but that's exactly right. God simply is. And on the day of judgment, some will be warmed in his loving embrace because they are wrapped and clothed in the glorious righteousness of Christ. Others will be utterly destroyed by the self-same God who doesn't change. What changes is the position of the sinner before God. Are they in Christ? Or are they not? So for the believer, God doesn't change and therefore we can trust him to save. Lord, who should I tell them is sending me to them? I am who I am. But I mentioned this just a moment ago, but our second application is this. God's identity and his covenant work are intimately connected. We see it in Malachi. We see it here in Exodus. We see it in other places. God makes covenant with people and he attaches his name, a name which signifies that he doesn't Change. God intended in this text to save the Hebrews. He says, I've remembered your fathers. The text right before ours says that the Lord remembers his covenant. Interestingly enough, he doesn't say, you know what, Moses, tell them I'm the one that made the covenant with Abraham. No, he says. Tell them I am sent you. God's identity and his covenant work are intimately 
connected. Here's how this works for us. God promised that the skull-crushing seed of the woman would come. This promise was carried through Abraham. You're going to have a family and a land. And it happened. Because God doesn't change. This family morphed into a nation under the care of Moses. Eventually, God creates kings from this people through a series of events. And God takes one of those kings and says, there is always going to be a king from your family on the throne. That king comes. He is born of a virgin. He is placed in a manger. He is perfect, truly God and truly man. He lives a perfect life and dies on a cross. And that same Lord Christ says, if you come to me, I will not cast you out. My blood is sufficient Through his apostles, the words read, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Through his apostles, the words are now given from the lips of Christ through their pens. There is nothing that can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. These are promises. These are covenant fruits. And they come from God who doesn't change. Listen, if I tell you, I will save you. There's probably a, well, you choose the percentage, but it's not a 100% chance it's going to happen. Because I'm fallible, I'm sinful, and I'm not all powerful, as much as I might want to save you from something. But that is not who our God is. And all throughout the pages of the Bible, His people are not called to know simply that He saves, but that He who saves is who He is. Well, thirdly, as we close, we said God was without parts. That helps us when we think about his saving work. You see, because God exists without relying on anything. Thus, we can truly believe his word. God doesn't have some mercy for you. He is mercy toward you. Ephesians 2, 4. Describes God as being rich in mercy. God doesn't feel love for you the way you do for your child or your spouse. It's not like that. He is love toward you, 1 John 4, 8. John Norton, writing in the 1650s, says this, quote, all the attributes in God are one and the same perfection. It is better said of God that he is his attributes than that he has attributes. The attributes are not distinguished in God, but in our manner of understanding, who being unable to comprehend that mere act at once, do conceive thereof after the manner of many acts. For every and all the attributes are the divine essence itself. According to that received Proposition, whatsoever is in God, is God. You know, we live in a day where so many wonderful brothers and sisters are crafting statements of faith. And they'll say, as they ought to, as we would if we were coming up 
from scratch with it. They'll say, well, we need to say something about who God is. Well, God is one God existing as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that's good. But in an attempt to make things perhaps more simple, the language of who God is over the last several hundred years has been whittled down to one to two sentences in the average statement of faith. Of course, you come to Grace Baptist Chapel or other churches like it and you read, you've got three full paragraphs on the doctrine of God. Isn't that excessive? Some of these words I can't even pronounce. But wouldn't we rather, in awe with Moses, with sandals off on holy ground, say, I would rather spend my life getting to know more about who God is than to be content saying, I think I've got this, let me move on. Brothers and sisters, with no offense at all meant towards statements of faith that are shorter, we have a really wonderful heritage in paragraphs like this because they are right out of the Bible. But they're not just for our heads. Therefore, the awe of sandalless feet standing in front of the living God who says, yes, I'm going to save you. Here is who I am. Let's pray. Living God, we pray that we might grow in our love for you, that it might not simply be an academic exercise, but a very practical one. That in all of these ways in which your word describes you, we may come to understand that these things are good and true and right for us. And that as we behold our God, we may grow in love for who God is. Help us, we pray in Jesus name. Amen.